absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Rounds of Court. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Rounds of Court Squash Podcast. My name is Arthur Gaskin. With me is ever Stuart Crawford and Chris Sackley. Happy New Year, fellas. How are we doing? You're not going to do a retake on that one. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. He had, a, just, he had a chance to have a fresh start at the you know, first pot of 2021 and he's just going to roll with it. That's just, how he's starting us off for the year. Well, I, I just so excited to see you boys. Yeah. It's been a long time. It's been a year. Unfiltered, unedited. <laughs> the way we like it. <laughs> so how are we doing? I'm good, yeah. Pretty quiet start to the year. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> All good. I'm uh back back to reality after a couple weeks in Florida. Um, you know, swimming and golfing and not All right. doing much. Easy. I uh I don't know what came over me, but on New Year's Day for some bizarre reason. I was sitting down on the couch, tooling around on the interweb, and I decided to go for a run. So there I go, put on the brogues, put on my hat, my woolly hat, and just about to leave. And Kerry's like, what are you doing? He says, go for a run. Says, really? Yeah. So it starts off, nice, steady pace. First two, first two, For the first two miles, I'm jogging, I'm thinking, and I'm getting into it. I'm in nice rhythm, and you boys will appreciate it, being you know good runners that you are. And I, I'm thinking, ah, do you know what? I never thought I'd do a marathon, but I might, I might, that, could, that could be something I could do. <laughs> And then, and then I started thinking, but I'd love, I love the bike, maybe a duathlon or something like that. By the time mile three came around, uh, legs were dead, and uh, yeah. I just could not move. It went then, from a it's very modest pace of like maybe seven and a half, eight minutes a mile, which is steady as she goes, to like ten. <laughs> that's when the that's when the Chris Sackfee negative self talk creeps in, and you're like, why am I running? How does Stuart do this? Why does he like this? Yeah. You got you started out with the Stuart mindset and then you turned into me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this. This is fun. Yeah. And then just well, I can't I'm wait sorry. to text Stuart and say, Hey Stu man, <laughs> let's do a virtual run together. Hey, maybe yeah. let's do the Boston Marathon next year. <laughs> Anytime. I've had a solid start to the year in my run. I think I'm up to close to hundred miles already for the year. Oh jeez. So, I would love to know how many miles you think you ran in 2020, or do you know exactly how many? Look at that I know exa- exactly in kilometers. Shoot. Good uh, I think it was 2,000, no, 3,200. Wow. So it was about 2,000 miles. It was just short of, it was about 3,100 and something. It's pretty impressive. So, yeah. 1,900 miles. miles. Yikes, that's a lot. I did. Just over 1,800 miles on the bike. Yeah, that's pretty good going as well. It's not bad. Most of it was in March, April, and May. Well, I, I drove my car further than both you guys, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so uh, 2020, it's done and dusted. Most people in the world are probably delighted about that. I mean, so far in 21, not much has changed, but hopefully better days are ahead. What do we think about the previous year in terms of squish? Yeah, we we thought it'd be a good chance to just look back at last year. Obviously, a pretty strange and unique year overall. Um, but I think there was still a lot of good talking points that we can discuss and review. Um, so we've got a few topics we want to run through. I think we're going to start with um, just our favourite match of the year or the best match that we saw throughout the year. So do you guys want to fire off if you've got anything? Yeah, I, ju- I just went post... I went post COVID. Um, 
so I just did the more recent. Uh, that's that's what I was kind of looking at. But um, uh, my my favorite, I think my you know my favorite match on the women's side, probably a little recency bias, and had such a good time having her on. But SJ over Hanio, I thought was uh was um one of the best matches that love to come back. And then just probably because I like watching these guys so much, uh, Ali versus Paul, the final of Qatar and you know, probably I probably weighted the uh, the matches in the final a little heavier than like early round matchups. There were obviously some great early round matchups with people as well, but Ali versus Paul final of Qatar. I just watched back a little bit of that again, and I just like the way those guys uh, battle against each other. For me, on the men's side, it's close. It's either Mohamed El Jabagi against Karim Abdel Gawad in the final of Manchester, partially just because of how hungry Mohamed seemed. I genuinely was super inspired watching that. And for an outlet, you know, jumping on the bike then, doing some intervals pretty soon after the match was, was the effect that that had on me. And the other game would, uh, would have been Ferez Dezuki against uh, Diego Elias. The heavy hitting of both players. It was like watching, I don't know, Clubber Lang and Rocky Balboa go for it and Rocky Three in their, in their rematch. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the women's side, I would say Hanya El Hamami versus... Nor Al Tayyab at the final of the World Series. I really wanted to see Nor Al Tayyab win. I wasn't displeased to see Hanya win, obviously, but just, oh, I couldn't help but feel absolutely gutted for Nor Al Tayyab. Yeah, so this has worked out great because I thought we might have some overlap because we, we had discussed the categories, but not actually what we were going to go for. But it looks like we've all picked something different. So, so I sort of separated mine a little bit out into the best matches I saw in terms of the sheer quality of squash on display and also my favourite matches for various things like drama or seeing someone come back. But my best matches on the men's side, actually on both sides, came before lockdown and both happened to be the last matches that were played before lockdown started. So on the men's side, I had the Canary War final between Shabagi and Farag, which... Um, was 3-1 to Shibagi, but just brilliant quality squash all the way through. I think both of them said that, that they thought that that was one of the highest quality matches they'd played against each other, and they've obviously played a lot, so uh, that was a highlight. And then on the women's side um, was the Shabini against Hanya final in black ball, but the, the marked version. Um, and again, just... Uh, Really good quality, but also notable because I think that was Hanya's real breakthrough. Um, she'd obviously been kicking around. She was ranked 10 in the world at the time, but I don't think anyone really considered her to be a, a major threat for those big platinum-level events. And then she obviously had four back-to-back wins against high-ranked opponents, uh, finishing off with beating Shabini. I think it was 13-11 in the fifth, and great match. In terms of my actual favourite matches, just from a sort of drama and intrigue and that perspective, uh, on the men's side, I went for a sal against Cole, but not the sort of controversial one that they played in the Egyptian Open. I thought the, the black ball open one they played had all the same sort of drama and had had me cap, like captivated the whole way through, but then also had good quality squash and not any of the blocking that Asal was guilty of in the first one. So I really enjoyed that match. And then on the women's side, I think special mention needs to go to Hanya and Camille for, I think they played five times in 2020 and almost every match was absolutely brilliant. But I think the highlight of those matches, I've had to pick one, was maybe the Egyptian Open, which 
um, was Hanya winning in five in 91 minutes, I think. So they were my highlights. Deadly. That was a ding-dong. So what the next category we had listed was breakthrough performances um, based on what we've seen last year. And then next we'll go on to predictions for breakthrough performances moving into next year if the season gets up and running. Fingers crossed there. It's hard, I mean, for the men's, it's probably pretty obvious. Even pre-lockdown, you had a Sal coming through in uh, TOC, beating Greg Gaultier, beating Ramatandon first round Gaultier in the glass. No, he, did he lose to Gaultier or beat Gaultier? And he beat, he beat Gaultier. And beat Abu Algar. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's... And then from there, obviously, beating the world number four, Paul Cole. It's pretty hard to argue with that. And then on the women's side... I mean, you would almost say the same for Hanya, even though it feels like she's been there for since Hector was a pup. It really was only in the last 12 months that, or maybe slightly more like 15, 16 months uh, that she was a, a real contender. Yeah, yeah, agreed on both of those. I mean, a couple, I mean, SJ obviously been there, but breakthrough, breakthrough win for her, winning the biggest title um, recently. And then the other big one I had in terms of a single performance um, Yusuf Ibrahim over Mohamed El Shabagi, which I I also really really liked watching watching that match. Just it's pretty fun to see a guy who who can't miss with with uh, the ability like him. So that was um, probably my my breakthrough performance on the men's side. Yeah, so I tried to be. I mean, I agree that Asal and Hanya are the two obvious contenders and. I thought I'd do a little bit of sort of stat research and see if I could come up with any other justifications for other see, players. Facts Crawford. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and there was a few people stood out. So on the women's side, um, Sabrina Sobi, who moved up from 39 in the world in January to 20 in the world January this year. It's a pretty significant jump. Uh, Farida Mohammed is another player who's sort of had some breakthrough performances and uh, really improved her ranking. I think she went from like 52 to 34, something like that. Um, I think probably less of a rankings jump, but just in terms of her competitiveness against the top players, I think Nella Gillis has really moved up a level and shown that she's progressed, even though she was kind of top 20 at the start of the year and she's still sitting She's closer to top 10, but she's still not broken into the top 10. I think there's a real difference in the, the threat that she poses to the top eight players now. Um, and then on the men's side, this was interesting because it, it wouldn't have been someone I considered, but who do you guys think moved up within the top 50, moved up the most number of places in the top 50? Nathan Lake. Past- uh, Ian, Ian Yao. No, you're both wrong. So Nathan Lake was close. He he started the year at 55 and got up to 43. So he moved up 12 places. But Mohamed El Shabini moved up 15 places from 47 to 32. Class, which was the high, highest jump uh, inside the top 50 in the last 12 months. Well, he had a great you, run in. Uh, sorry, he had a great run at in Detroit, where he came through unseeded and made the final, only to lose to Diego Elias. Yeah, well, that that probably explains a large part of it. I mean, you, technically, the the person that moved up the most in the last twelve months is Gauthier, who had an astonishing rise from five hundred and forty three in the world to thirty nine in the world. Um, but I don't know if you would really class that, bearing in mind that it's Gauthier we're talking about. 
Sorry, I just reminisce. Remember when we first started off in the PSA and you qualify for a 10K or you make a quarter final and you go from like 300 to 150. And then I remember after I stopped for a couple of years and came back and my first tournament, my first two tournaments were the same month and it was like a semi and then I won the second one. And I went from like the very bottom of the rankings to like 120 or something. It was deadly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're you're probably making half the progress you need to make to get to number one. Just another month and... Yeah. <laughs> if only it worked out like that another 120 places and you're up at number one in the world yeah yeah no big deal eh? easy yeah um the other players that stood out on that front in terms of um moving up the rankings inside the top 50 were Yusuf Ibrahim who we've already mentioned and I think we also need to mention Dusuki um because I think again it's a bit like Neil Gillis, it's not so much that he's improved his ranking all that significantly, but just I think you can't really deny that he's now a major threat and probably back at he's back at the same ranking as he was before he had his surgery. But I think in terms of the threat that he poses to the top players, you could easily argue that he's way beyond where he was back then. Here's a question for you guys. Sorry, it wasn't on the categories that we discussed before. What player have you enjoyed watching the most over the last 12 months? I didn't agree to this question beforehand. <laughs> it just popped in my head. Debate. <laughs> yeah. This is like, not cleared by my uh, by my team. By your agent. Yeah, <laughs> I got I got to get my guy to speak to your guy. Are you are you meaning uh, an established top player or someone just, that's kind of broke through that we maybe haven't watched as much? Just anyone at all. Like who have you gone out of your way to watch play, or you know who you like? Oh, so and so is playing today. Can't wait to see him on Squish TV like over the last 12 months. And it, it probably relates, certainly for me, it relates maybe a little bit more when the tour resumed in September. September, excuse me. I mean, normally for me, the player that I love watching is Gawad. And uh, apart from that first tournament back where he made the final, it's probably fair to say that he was a little bit disappointing. The other player that I always love watching just because of the way he plays and he's always so smooth and free-flowing is Diego Elias. Smooth operator. Uh, yeah, on the women's side, um well, one of my biggest disappointments, which isn't one of our categories, but one of my biggest disappointments this year was the retirement of Renim because she was definitely my favourite player, along with Shabini, I guess. But um, I'm going to miss not watching her. And I was watching Sabrina Sobe come through. I think she's got a very enjoyable game to watch. Again, she moves really smoothly, uses the four corners well. Um, and is always in nice, clean, fair matches. So it'd be my picks. I think Sabrina and Amanda are playing uh, right around now, live on Instagram. Oh no way! Yeah, uh, I, who are we going for? We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I'd say I we've talked about it um, on the pod. I think Asal was a guy that I think we all agreed on. Didn't matter if we loved the way he competed in the round before. It was like you just knew you wanted to watch him play again the next round, whether it was for good or bad reasons on different days. And yeah. and granted, it, it was for good reasons on every day. Just some days had a little bit of the bad mixed in. Um, but, I mean, in terms of just the – I would disagree it, slightly, Chris. There's yeah? definitely some matches that I did not want to watch yourself play again. Really? <laughs> yeah. But you probably did. You've just, I probably you probably did, yeah. You didn't miss much. 
Um, and then I, I always like I always like watching Allie play, and he's the kind of guy I feel like you don't you almost write it off in the early rounds. Like you don't need to watch him play because you know he's going to be there later. But yeah. but I like to watch him play uh, as the tournaments progress. And um, on the women's side, yeah, I'd, I'd say Trebini definitely is is consistently one of my one of my favorites to watch. Um, so I'll go with them. Deadly. I was only thinking about it earlier on. I always got out of my way. I did actually get out of my way to watch a sal and call both times. But Jimbo, like just still an unbelievable player. Just love watching him play. Makes me want to like get in the court, do a bit of solo, hold it, flick it. Yeah, that most recent, that most recent match that everyone you know was commenting on Twitter and stuff, where he just kind of had a smile on his face the whole time. He's just doing whatever, just so creative out there, doing whatever, whatever kind of came to mind, and just playing with a lot of ease. It was really fun to watch. Yeah. I find him such a good player to watch as a coach because there's so much obvious structure to what he's doing that it's, it's quite easy to see tactically what he's trying to do, the way he's trying to manipulate his opponent. And yeah, I find him, I used to struggle to watch him as a player when I was trying to learn because so much of what he does is, was beyond what I was ever going to be capable of. But I, I love watching him for, with a coaching hat on. So what about our sort of predicted breakthroughs for next year? Are there any players that we think are going to come through and be the next Asal and Hanya? Well, I'll start there because I took this as a little bit of like a hot take breakthroughs of 2021 where I have, you know, Hania potentially touching number one in 2021. Probably depends on how many tournaments there are. Um, and then I also had, Assault cracking the top eight. So those two people you mentioned, which doesn't sound like a hot take at all, but as we've mentioned on the pod before, when you look at the top eight, um, it's a scary thing to say like someone else is going to be in there because right now you have Diego, you have kind of your your top your top four or five there with Ali Muhammad, Turek, Paul, Kareem. And then you have Marwan Elsherbagi, Diego Elias, Ferris Suzuki, and then outside of the top eight, Joel Macon, Miguel Rodriguez, Mohamed Abuelgar. So, so to say, you know, I think it's fairly obvious that Asal is going to get there, but it's not like a super easy task because someone else bumping out of there is pretty hard to think about as well. It's like putting a bunch of elephants into a mini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very. Uh... Scary thing, but then the other, yeah, I had Sabrina Sobe going even higher. Um, you know, really pushing pushing the top ten. Once again, it's kind of hard to make these predictions not knowing how many events there there will be and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I don't see her slowing down in terms of her rise. Um, also, uh, Ian Yao. Um, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that name right. Yeah. I think uh, I've, I was kind of, you know, we were talking to him with Hadrian and, and watching his rise and sounds like he's, he's, you know, just working his butt off and kind of moving up really, really, really steadily and really quickly. So I, I see him maybe getting in there too, getting into the mix a little bit more. Well, I, I've actually looked at it further down the rankings um, and I've, I say I've cheated a little bit. I mean, the first thing, if you want to find a breakthrough star is just pick out the best young Egyptians that are, outside the top 50 currently 
<laughs> um, and not only did I do that, I just went independently, but I've ended up arriving at the two most recent British Junior Open under-19 champions. So you had on the men's side, Mustafa El Serti, um, who's currently at 83 in the world, and on the side, Jana, who's at 57 in the world. Now, again, we're talking about the, the number of tournaments being a big factor to determine how how much of a rise these players can make. That, that's even more of an issue down at that level because they they don't get into these big, big platinum events that have been happening. So it's possible that they might not get any opportunities to compete in the near future. And who knows what the tour is going to look like of sound. But I think under normal circumstances, then it's pretty safe to assume that two players that won the most recent British Junior Open, obviously it should have just happened last week, but didn't happen this year, but they both won the 2020 version. Very logical. Yeah, I watched El Certi play. Um, and I mean, I knew, I knew he was... He was going to come quick just because he's not a he's not an under nineteen that needs to grow into his body and, and kind of get more physical. He's a he's a big <laughs> strong he's a big strong lad. Um, he's got a pro body ready to go. A self physique ready. Yeah. Another person I had that's that is a little bit higher up that um, is maybe a little bit left field is uh, Yusuf, but not Yusuf Ibrahim. Yusuf Solomon. Um, he's all. He's impressed me when I've watched him. He's currently at 27 in the world, so he's already pretty high, but I can see him breaking into the top 20 in the next year. Yeah, and he's in Bristol with Hadrian and Yang Mohammed, training with Mohammed Al Shabagi and Marwan. And uh, what's that guy's name? I can't pronounce it. I can't get no. Yeah. Class player. I'm going to go for uh, a couple of outside ones. A huge fan of uh, Masuti, Baptiste Masuti. Yeah, young French kid. I think he's going to go far. Strikes a strikes the ball beautifully, really clean hitter, good mover, and I think he the more opportunities he gets to play at that high level, uh, you know, against those top players, he's he's going to be knocking on the door soon. I'm going to say he could potentially break the top sixteen in 2021 if he gets the opportunity to play. And then on that the is way, a big call. He's 36 at the moment in the world. Yeah, no. It's a big call, but <laughs> let's go big. Let's go big or go home, bro. Yeah. Um, and, he, and he might not, but I definitely think he's got a bright future ahead of him, and I really enjoy watching him play. And then on the women's side, I'm going to go for young English player Lucy Termel. You know, she's got a good team around her. She works really hard. Um, not that working really hard gives you liberty to break the top 20 or 16 or 10 in the world, but I think she's doing all the right things. And with someone like Laura Mazzaro in her corner and, mentoring her I think she has and she's already shown and proven that she has all the credentials to go very very far and I think this could be a really good breakthrough year for her yeah she strikes me as someone that's making pretty steady progress without doing anything spectacular but just looking at my spreadsheet she went up 10 spots last year um and yeah I would agree that it's a good shout someone that could I mean if she makes another 10 spots improvement, then she's suddenly up at 26 in the world and really challenging the best players. So moving on, one of the categories I thought would be interesting would be what we thought was the best tournament of the season. Irish Nationals. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Irish Open. Yeah, there wasn't, wasn't one this year. Best tournament. I love the World Series, to be honest. 
best of three format, like really fast, intense games. It's entertaining. The drama as well, especially on on the uh, on the women's side and the, the group of death, as, as it might have been called, with Nora Tayeb, Kamisaram, and Haniel Hamami all vying for a place to get in, and Amanda Sovi upsetting the apple cart when she beat Kamisaram to love, and that sent. Can't remember if it said Hanya through to the semis or Nora Tayeb. But I thought that was pretty exciting. Yes, it sent El Tayeb through. I think I think El Tayeb was watching that match, desperately praying for an upset win in that. Um, and I would agree. I just like you. I love the format. I love the way that you can lose a match in the group stage and still come back and win the tournament overall. Um, you also get great matches every day. With goes without saying, with the top eight in the world playing each other in every match, then there's not really any duds. Um, yeah, and then the other pick I would have is the Egyptian Open in front of the pyramids just because it's so iconic and um, it's great that PSA have been able to run that event the last couple of years and have one of the most prestigious iconic events in the sport in the calendar. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the Qatar Classic on the men's side. I thought you had some unbelievable matchups with like Paul to get to the finals, went through, I think, Dasuki, Momin, Marwan, to play Ali in the final. Um, Yusuf, Yusuf had the Muhammad upset that, that uh, tournament. Ali had a great match with Diego. Um, I just thought, like, you know, there were some really fun, good matches and matchups there. And then on the women's side, I, I liked the kind of chaos at the, uh, at the black ball. I tell you what, fair play to Egypt, because we wouldn't have had half the amount to talk about without them. Oh, man. Jeez, okay. talk about a, a squash nation, just, you know, putting their hand up and saying, hey, fellas, Boys and girls, let's come, come to our country. Yeah, seriously. I think even more than just Egypt, fair play to CIB Bank because I think they're the ones putting the money into the, the events in Egypt. So, yeah, I forget the name of the chairman of the CIB Bank, but he seems to be a large driving force behind it. So, he's a legend. Job. Yeah, whoever <laughs> you are, you're a legend. Yeah. We'd love to get you on the pod, my old friend. <laughs> yeah, we need a sponsor. Um, so, so, what about our highlights, both? In terms of the PSA calendar, but also just our personal highlights from the year of 2022. Oh wow! Oh, that wasn't on the card. It's got to be. It's got to be the pod with you fellas. See you guys in a, you know, couple of times a week. It's been. It's been great. It's been a blast. Totally agree. Um, don't even really remember what life was like before the pod. To be honest, <laughs> started podcasting, got married, still kind of still podcasting, still married. <laughs> you know, everything's still moving. Would the pod be a, a bigger highlight than your marriage? Whoa. Uh can't say that. Can't say that live on air. She's a she's a listener. Oh, she, she's doing better <laughs> and than my and she can half. and she, she can listens. hear me because she's in the other room. <laughs> yeah, romance. Was, who said romance was dead? <laughs> I think my other half first five or six episodes and hasn't listened since. So your wife's doing better than me. <laughs> I've got some bad news for you, though, Arthur. I've I've got my top three highlights of 2020, and the pod didn't make it into the top three. So, Oof. fair enough. Yeah, to each their own. Yeah. Well, we were thinking about getting Hadrian so, in to replace you, anyways. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, Hadrian, it's all yours. Um, no, I I thought just just having a a schedule of events was highlights. Just having something to keep me occupied in Italy, watching. Eight hours a day was, um, 
I think PSA does a huge amount of credit for keeping the thing during that period. And it's uh, it's unfortunate that they don't seem like they're able to continue that momentum um, into the new year because it doesn't look like there's going to be any events until sort of April is what I understand is going to be the the earliest that there's going to be events. So that's a shame. But again, great job from September through December to have those four or five events that they put on. Uh, personal highlight in a squash sense was obviously started a new job working at Penn and um, way back in February feels like feels like longer ago uh, we managed to make the final of the college squash national championships um, and the semi-finals we beat Trinity who've been the sort of college squash superpower for the last 20 years so that was a personal highlight for me and then my final one that made my list ahead of you guys was my new half marathon personal best so oh jeez oh. uh, I mean I, I, if I had to go top four maybe put the pod at four four is alright better than five yeah true to be fair I I mean I just got, went on there pod is definitely in my top three and I would say yeah I mean my Nola turn on one was pretty cool to be fair like she's a bit of a legend <laughs> uh, at least in our eyes but then that's and then I think winning the nationals with Nola in the crowd was was kind of cool even though she will never remember there's just a picture there that we'll, we'll always have and I kind of yeah I kind of like that great and you'll remember it I'll remember it and I'll remind her of it <laughs> until you get really old and dementia starts to kick in or oh whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. easy uh, listen age is going to happen I, I just Knock on wood. Uh, no, 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 no dementia, please. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Chris, I mean, I, I would assume that you have to put the marriage in there at one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. One, one A, one B, pod, pod marriage. <laughs> <laughs> no particular order. Yeah, you two and her, I basically spend most of my time with. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah, you two, Nolan Carey. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you two... Gilly and Jack Wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go, fellas. Couple things uh, we want to see in 2021 really quickly. I need to I need to see Nick Sackvey get back get back up to where he was a couple years ago in the rankings. Crack back into that that top 60, top 70 range. Um, and I wrote down a couple others, just just uh, you know, friends of the pod, really that I, that I'd love to see, like Amanda Sobe win a platinum. One of our one of our biggest listeners, I think, um, Olivia Victor cracking in that top twenty, and uh, yeah, one of our current players, Frida Muhammad, is kind of looking like she's knocking on the door. I'd love to see her get to a, uh, you know, like semi of a platinum and really make a run, and then and then I, I'd love to see Paul and Diego get a big one too. It was kind of my my squash would love to see is in twenty twenty one, my pod twenty twenty ones around the court squash camp with you guys there we go bro real hey <laughs> happen let's make yeah. it happen it'll definitely happen yeah I, I think the only thing i really want to do man is everyone to be vaccinated i feel like i miss i miss like handshakes and hugs nice hug yeah yeah more more hug to be honest i kind of <laughs> yeah just give someone a hug have a beer happy days talk about the good old times more pardon possibly uh maybe a trip to poland for the world masters but I would prefer just a trip home to Ireland to see the family with for, for Kerry, Nola, and I would be pretty cool. Yeah, my my immediate 
objective is to get back to the US. So we've just had confirmation that we're going to be allowed to reopen the courts at Penn and start working with the teams again from February 1st. So that's sort of uh, at the top of my plans at the moment, to try and get back on a squash court and even just see a squash court. I don't think I've seen one properly since, since March. So that would be nice. Um, and then hopefully the squash world can return to some sort of normality with junior tournaments, with college squash matches taking place next next season and hopefully the PSA tour back up and running. So yeah. that's definitely what I'm looking forward to the most. Happy days, guys. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, all right. Well, uh, we'll wrap up there. Earlier on, we caught up with Vanessa Atkinson. I have to say, a little bit nervous, actually. When, uh, when she came on, it was like, first question, I was all set to go. Had a little bit of a stammer. That was okay. We got through it. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, just a great conversation. Enjoy. Cheers, fellas. Cheers. And we're delighted to welcome onto the show former world number one and world champion and former Irish Open champion, Vanessa Atkinson. <laughs> at the time of the Irish on. Open. I'd forgotten about that one. <laughs> How could you forget about the Irish Open? <laughs> Huge win in my career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. World Open is like second to that, isn't it? Oh, oh God, so. yeah. No, possibly even before. I must get on to Martin McDonald. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you for having me. This is my first ever podcast. Oh, it? and it's, it's your first ever Zoom as well, I believe. It is my first ever Zoom, first ever podcast. I've never even listened to a podcast. No way. What is this a podcast? Is, this is, this is <laughs> big we'll send time. you the link after we're done. You can listen to your first one. I've got two kids. I mean, I've barely got time for like basic personal hygiene, never mind listening to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you've never been on a Zoom. I know, I've done well. I've done well. Jimbo's, I, I, Jimbo's I I, avoided it. But he's, he's done a few, so he gave me a quick tutorial just before I came <laughs> on. Um, I'm on his account. That's why it probably says JW at the top. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. No, I've done well. I think I have seven today. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm not, and I'm not lying. No way. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. Poor That's... thing, you poor thing. Yeah. My, my, kids want, my kid's doing homeschooling on Teams, which I think is quite similar um, yeah. to Zoom. Um, and he's not, he's not enjoying it. <laughs> He's not enjoying it at all. So it's a universal thing. Don't blame him. It's brutal. Um, so talking about squash, and we, we, you know, on the back of your intro, world champion, Irish Open champion, and world number one, where, 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 where did it all begin for you, Vanessa? I thought you were going to ask, where, where do you rate those three? No, no, we all know Irish Open. Yay! Where did it all begin for me? What do you mean? What do you well, mean, where so, did it all begin? So when you, uh, yes, yeah, you're right. I didn't give enough substance to that. So, you know, <laughs> when you started in your professional career, I mean, obviously the dream is world number one, world champion. At what point did you feel that that was a realistic target? How did you go about that? Um, it, it, was probably about, it was probably about an hour before I went on court in the World, world Open <laughs> final. <laughs> but nice. I thought it was a realistic target, to be honest. Um, yeah, it took me a while. It took me a while to have any kind of belief. Um, you know, I was, I think I was 28 or 29 when I won the world title. So I'd been on tour for 10 or 11 years already. Um, and, you know, it, it took a long time to, to work all of it out, to, you know, to get the right sort of discipline, work ethic, to get mentally in the right space to be able to win a tournament like that. It was, um, 
it was it was a long it was a long plod <laughs> to get there um and you know once once i did that there was a huge amount of belief that came along with just winning that tournament um and i was able to get you know a, a few more wins after that and i had a decent run i think for a couple of years um you know and then i was in my into my 30s and it was all starting to, <laughs> to head downhill um so it was, it was different very very different kind of story than to the girls that you see now that are, you know they're getting into the the top five you know before they've hit 20 um it, it took it took me a while it was it didn't come naturally put it that way you had a quick look uh earlier on and i remember actually having a sense of it you kind of had like a steady uh rise up the rankings like you sort of hit the 50s the 40s the 30s the 20s and then yeah 10 and stuff yeah, that was actually, I mean, there was a lot of players that did that then. It was almost like you kind of did your apprenticeship and um, it, it took it took a long time to get the sort of the physical and mental maturity to be able to compete at that top level. And there weren't, there weren't many players that would reach the top of the game, you know, in their early 20s even. So it, it, it didn't seem like it, it was taking me massively longer than anyone else. I was pretty on par with the, the girls that I'd grew up playing against. Um, but yeah, as I said, you know, compared to what's happening now, it was just, it's just a different world. The, the Egyptians have just massively turned all that around and they're, they're playing at a level so early um, that it's just, yeah, I mean, that was just unimaginable for me when I came on tour at 18, but getting to the level of someone like, you know, Michelle Martin and Sarah Fitzgerald that were at the top of the game then was just, that was so far away. I mean, it wasn't even in the same realm of, of it was like a different sport that they were playing, what it felt like anyway. I was just curious if there was anything that really clicked when it did come together. Was there anything you'd been working on for maybe a year or two leading up to that that you felt really made that difference? Um, it was mostly mental. That was that was my big weakness, um, was um, getting rid of that sort of negative spiral that I had a tendency to get into, if, um, which was lack of confidence. Um, and that held me back for a long time. And I think once I was old enough to not be scared of sort of uh, looking that, you know, looking at myself in the mirror and really uh, facing that and, and realizing that that was something I needed to work on. Once I did that, then it started to improve, um, you know, realizing that I was, I was fighting against myself most of the time on court. Um, and there was a few, you know, there was certain people that helped me with that. There was some books that helped me. Um, and, and slowly I managed to turn that around. And also just finding the, the discipline um, with my training, that took a long time. That didn't come naturally. You know, some people, that, that's not something that, you know, like James is very different to me. That's always, he's always had an extreme work ethic. Um, and I found that very difficult. I was able to do it in phases, but to do it day in, day out, um, I struggled with. And again, that improved as I got older. I was able to find the consistency um, with my training. So that obviously then helped me to be able to get to that level. And what about, um, I've always been curious where the, the Dutch connection came, because I, I know you obviously were born in the UK, but then you moved to Holland at quite a young age. Were your parents Dutch or? No, we're not. We're not. So there's no, there's no Dutch really in the, in the family. We, we moved there because my dad um, started working there. So he just moved the family there. Um, and I was, I was 10 and that was, that happened to be when I started playing. So nine, 10. Um, so it just felt natural because that's where I grew up playing through juniors to, to then um, play for Holland. I never really thought about playing for England. In hindsight, I probably should have done because the, the setup in England was so much more professional. Um, 
and I would have earned a lot more money as well because they were all getting funded through the lottery and um but yeah so because I'd just always played there and I'd, I'd gone through juniors there it just felt like a natural thing to do and I was still living there until until I met James really I was still living there until I was about 30. What was the scene like the squashing like there back in the day? Um I mean it was it's 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 that's probably one thing I'm most proud of that I've been able to come out of a country where there was there wasn't really much structure um and and still being able to get to that level you know if I look at the way you know if I compare it to someone like James and the English players what they had growing up and what they had access to in terms of coaches and physios and strength and conditioning I mean there was there was none of that I had to kind of do it on my own really um and I think just getting on tour and seeing the way other people were working that probably helped um but yeah there wasn't there wasn't really much in terms of um a level of players there wasn't a strong level in terms of depth um it, you know at club level or beyond um so yeah so I'm not I'm not really sure how, how I managed <laughs> to do that really um but you, you know you do get the odd player like someone like um Diego Elias that come out of countries that don't really have that many players and somehow are able to get up there um and I was I was quite I quite like the fact that I was playing for Holland you know at European at world level and, and you, you know you you'll both know that especially at European teams England was was the one to beat they were kind of the enemy in a way because they won everything so and I quite like the fact that playing for Holland that um you know that we were all striving to beat to beat the English team and and finally right at the end of my career we managed to do it oh geez I remember it that was yeah I remember it well well. I mean that's that's up there that's probably after the world open final that's probably my proudest moment was winning winning European championships because it was just such I mean it never happened before we were the first to do it to beat the English women's team and you've been in the final geez at least seven or eight Maybe more times, right? Up until many, that point. many times. Yeah, we had we had a a load of silver medals, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we'd never come close. Like we 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 lost, we would lose, you know, pretty pretty heavily every time, um, and you know we just had an opportunity that one year uh, and we took it. Yeah, amazing. Easier said. Am I right saying you actually beat them in the semi-finals rather than the final? Is that right? We did actually. Yeah, we beat them in the semis. Um, yeah. And because we, we'd lost to France in the pool, um, which which gave us the, the 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 worst draw in the semi-finals, so we came up against England in the semis and and beat them, just and then and then managed to turn it round in the final and beat France in the final. That was in Amsterdam as well, wasn't it? At France, Athens. It was in France actually. So we beat oh. the French. Yeah, Damn. yeah, it was in France. I can't remember where. <laughs> I can't remember I think where. It was France, in Provence. Aix en Provence. Yeah, that's right. Actually. Yeah, it might have been. It might have been. That's where most of the squash took place, yeah. One of the things I was most interested in when I looked through your record was um, you were actually the last person to be world number one before Nicole David's nine-year reign or whatever it ended up being. Yeah, I managed to to sneak (laughs) my win in just before she got really, really good. Um, So you must have played her quite a lot around that point because I think she was number two behind you when you were world number one, but... Do you have yeah. a sense, not just how good she was at that time, but how good she could potentially go on to become? I mean, de- yeah, I definitely sensed that she was going to be very, very good. I don't think anyone could have predicted quite how dominant she would prove to be. Um, but I mean, yeah, she was she was so young and she was already 
as I said, there was very few players that did were doing that at that in that time, being you know playing up to that level at that age. Um, so yeah, I played her a lot. I played her a lot um, in that sort of two thousand and three through to two thousand and six, um, and managed to get a few wins in, and then and then and then no more wins <laughs> after a while. <laughs> and then no one, no one got any. And wins then no in. one, could, no one could beat her for about ten years. Yeah. Legend. And then, you know, when the emergence of the, you know, your Anim Alvalides and your Laura Mazzaros, when they started to catch up on the level, like, could you see those players being as the players potentially have the credentials to dethrone her from the World War One, Or what was your sense? Um, I'm, I mean, it, it, it took a long time. Um, if, um, if I think back to sort of um, Renim and the kind of player she was, it was, it was very different that you know there were the Egypt, when those Egyptian girls when 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 I was playing sort of that sort of time two thousand and five two thousand and six there weren't there weren't really any players that were playing the kind of squash that that those girls started play, eventually playing with the hold and you know holding the ball that just wasn't really happening. Um, yes, yeah, so Omnia would have been the first one to come along and play. Yeah. That. Exactly, and then she wasn't she wasn't quite able to be um, consistent enough, you know, in other areas to be able to use that. But yeah, she was probably the first that really started to do that. Um, and I think that, and then obviously with for Nicole, there was obviously the tin being lowered, um, and that was kind of the beginning of the end a little bit, I think, for Nicole, um, and enabled those players. Um, to start to really exploit um, her squash a little bit because, the, you know, she, physically she was just so dominant. She was so tough to break down and she was able to make the rallies so long and so tough and keep players on court for such a long time that no one could really match her physically. And once those girls started to be able to shorten the rallies with the lower tin and with the holds and break her movement, then things started to turn um, but again, it, you know, it took it took a long time, and, and I think she's probably um, responsible for sort of upping everyone's level a little bit physically. Because the first thing you had to do, if you wanted to match it, was you're going to have to start training really, really hard. Um, and then, you know, the girls started to do that, and then they started to be able to break down the squash. When you look at Hanya and Nelly Galise play recently, and you're just thinking like, this is frightening how. Physically. So you need some pronunciation lessons here, Arthur. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think... Been given jo- she's been giving Joey a hard time in that pronunciation of... I know, none of Hillis? it's quite... I just get laughed at every time I say her name correctly. <laughs> but it's just like, they just all start giggling. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable that the, the, physically, I think, the, the girls are in, in as good shape as they've ever been and um, and I think that the way the game's played um, physically, it's slightly different. So it's um, the rallies are probably shorter, but it's so dynamic and such in such extreme movement. Um, whereas when I was playing, it was, it, you know, it was still 90% of the game was still played in the back of the court and it was a lot more old school squash. So that physically what, what is required of you has changed over the years. And I think you can sort of see that reflected in, in the physical bodies on court. Yeah. And as a commentator for PSA Squash TV, like are there players out there that you really look forward to watching, playing and commentating on? Um, I mean, yeah, most most of the top girls, I'd have to say, it's, you know, that there's there's a lot of contrasts, which is always good. Um, 
I love watching, um, you know, those Egyptian girls play against some of the, the, um, some of the girls that aren't, maybe aren't quite as attacking. Um, so, you know, the matchups with the Egyptian girls and Camille Serm are usually really good. Um, so it's not so much individual players, but I think it's just certain matchups that really work quite well. You know, we've seen, um, Raneem and Shabini, when they play each other, they haven't always had, I mean, they've had a couple of really good matches, but overall they haven't, they haven't really been the great matches. Um, and, and again, um, if, you know, some of the more physical players, if they play each other, they, you know, you'll get long competitive matches, but they aren't quite as entertaining. So it's always those contrasts that tend to show up, um, and bring, bring the really, really good matches, I think. I used to feel the same way when Shabana and Rami used to play each other and I would always get so excited about Oh yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> store. And yeah, yeah. Like eight or nine out of ten were just complete dead spread. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember like one of the first times I saw them play each other and it was just, yeah, it was just an absolute dud. Yeah. <laughs> it just didn't work. Um, yeah, it's true. In, ter- in terms of um, the game currently, if you compare it to when you were playing at the top, um, what do you think is the biggest difference? I know you've talked about it's a lot more dynamic, but do you think that's just because of the ten height and also the scoring? I think you were playing most of your career to nine, right? Yeah, both of those things, I think, combined make it um, probably more attacking. So the front court's just used so much more um, and which has forced the girls to physically have to be better so they can get more back around the front. Um, so it's more definitely more entertaining to watch. Um, and then the hold, the hold has just changed the game. What the Egyptian girls are doing with the hold, that just wasn't happening. It was happening in the men's game more, but in the women's game, it was not something I ever really had to deal with. And I'm glad I didn't have to deal with it, to be honest. I feel like um, Rachel and Natalie were using it a little bit. Yeah, they would sort of in a slightly flick. different way. Yeah. They would flick. They would use the flick a little bit, but not 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 that not that real hold that subtle hold that you see um players like Shabini and Raneem almost you know Shabini does it almost on every shot um where there's just that slight delay every time um i mean god i would, I, I guess i would have probably been more used to it and i would have maybe trained differently um but if you put me on court now with someone that was doing that i wouldn't have a clue where the ball was going um, it just wasn't something that was part of the game, um, and and again, that's just made it so much more entertaining. And and so that that wasn't something you were trying to incorporate in your training or anything. Like, um, obvi- obviously, it, it is something that takes a lot of a lot of like work and that subtlety. Um, you know, it was definitely a li- little bit of holding your backhand boost, Vanessa. That was just completely accidental. <laughs> that, was, that was just there. I didn't. I didn't know that was happening at all. Um, no, it wasn't really something um, I, I did um, much work on. Um, there was a, there was a couple of coaches that I worked with that tried to sort of later on in in the game, but it was probably a little bit too late by then to start trying to incorporate hold into your game when you're sort of 33 years old. But um, yeah, I think you you look at the players above you, don't you? You sort of model yourself on um, the players that you have to play against, um, and, and no one was doing that. It just wasn't, it just wasn't, and a lot of coaches weren't coaching it because they were, you know, they were from an era even before me. So if no one was, if no one was coaching that, and, and, and it wasn't happening on court, it just wasn't something that was in our sort of sphere at all. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly the players that sort of led the way before you, people like Michelle and Sarah Fitzgerald and even like Cassie, and they were all really just relentless pressure, yeah. getting the ball well to the back, but taking it early as opposed to, as you say, using the front and trying to move the ball around a bit the way they do these days. Exactly, yeah. I mean, they were all, they were all quite different, but they were all that sort of route one squash, you know, hit that ball accurately. Um, and that's the way we were all coached as well. You know, it was it was all based on you know making a, making an error, hitting the tin was like a mortal sin, um, and that was the way that was the way we were trained. Um, whereas now it's much more about take that chance, take that opportunity. Don't worry about making errors. You've got to take that chance. You can't be passive. And it was just so. I think the players are coached very differently now. Speaking of coaching, you've been around different coaching environments over the, the course of your career and your and your life as a junior squash player as well. The recent documentary in on Pontifract was on squash girls, which is brilliant. What do you think about, I suppose, A, what's your take on the Pontifract scene and then what makes it stand out? And what other scenes, coaching environments have you seen that have been very conducive to, you know, for young people to maximise their potential and to just to have a positive experience? Um, I mean, there's nowhere, there's nowhere like Pontefractor. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously massively biased, but I sincerely believe that as well. I've never, I've never seen anywhere that's as good for kids. Certainly, um, it's, um, it's completely unique, and, and it's interesting because I've just, you know, mentioning how um, coaches of my era didn't, didn't really coach players to, to, to be creative on court. Um, considering that Malcolm, who's 83 years old, I think he's actually been doing that for years. So he was way ahead of his time and he's always coached players to take every opportunity and be creative and, um, and, and, and go for stuff and, and never, never hold back and never worry really about making errors. Um, so he was, he was, he's been doing that for a lot longer than, than anyone else. Um, and just the setup there is very unique. The fact that kids are able to, get a lot of hours in on court in a sort of structured environment, but, um, you know, for very little money, they can, they can be playing four or five times a week sessions of an hour and a half. Um, and with, with barely any one-to-one coaching and somehow develop, uh, into very technically sound players. And I wouldn't have thought that was possible if I hadn't sort of seen it with my own eyes. I was very much brought up in an environment where it was coaching was one-on-one, you did, you know, you did group training, obviously, but if you wanted to become technically a better player, you had to have one-on-one coaching. Um, and you know, now I, I really don't, I really don't believe that's true anymore. Funny, you were talking just a few minutes ago about you know not having the hold or the hold wasn't really around. It was root one squash back in the day, and, and I could just have these memories in the back of my head of Malcolm. You know, somebody hits a back wall post, you just hear him at the top of his lungs yeah. going, "Hold, hold, hold. exactly." Yeah. And then followed by. Nice hold. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, exactly. And there's no explanation of how to do that. He doesn't ever explain how to do something. He lets he gives people the freedom to work that out for themselves. So you kind of the players there, they learn how to hit the ball through play. Yeah. You basically you work it out through a lot of time on court. Um, and if you think about the players that he's produced, players like I think they say it in the documentary, players like Lee Beachill and James. They're very, very different, which again is quite unique. Um, coaches tend to produce players that have a very similar style, um, but the one thing they both do have is they both have hold, <laughs> natural hold. <laughs> yeah. But they've never been instructed. They've never been taught how to hold a ball. That just came naturally. 
um, through being on court and, and playing and playing and allow, being given the freedom to be creative on the squash court. It's a, it's a nice balance between, as you said earlier, structure, but also in a way not structured. It's not as structured as what you would get in America where there's a lot of individual lessons and even, even group training is very much a lot more structured, whereas it seems like there's a lot more freedom to be creative and to just learn from what other people around you are doing and just feed off that pontefract. Yeah, the, the, the structure comes from um, the rules. So he's very strict, obviously, in terms of behavior and, um, you know, staying in your area of the court. And he has all his rules and, and he's very strict with that. But then within the, within the play and which shots you select, there is a lot of freedom. Um, and it's actually a very relaxed environment as well, which I think people probably wouldn't expect because they think of him as such a disciplinarian um, that it's going to be very, you know, everyone's going to be on edge. And it's actually the opposite. It's actually quite relaxed. And it's quite fun. They're quite fun sessions, I always found. You say that, but he's not going to be happy with you for giving away his age earlier. I know. God, I hope I got that right as well. <laughs> I'm not sure. We, we can edit. <laughs> yeah, please do. 63. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> plug, plug and play that. <laughs> At heart, definitely at heart. Oh, he's a legend. Just, uh, he, he has a lot of care as well for a lot of kids and the students that kind of pass through. He's not, yeah, he loves it. He just loves it. He loves it. And, and you know, and he, he actually credits the success of um, of what he does to, to showing up, which is, which is huge, um, to just being there every day. Um, you don't have to book, a, you don't have to book the session. You have to, you know, to, to have sort of almost been invited to come you can't just show up but once you're in that group you just you just come you just turn up like you know like you've you've been there Arthur and you just you just go every morning um and the session's never not on there's always a group there um and that's the same for the kids it's it's constant it's a constant thing and that's huge that's a huge thing for juniors yeah to keep them interested is just someone showing up every day I think I was saying a little bit offline earlier but, you know, I had to get there, I had the option of either getting a train that got in at 25 past nine or 25 past 10. And the session would start at half. So I used to always take the early train, you know, and, and initially it started off of just hit a few extra balls and do a warm up. I used to invite us up to his office and talking all sorts of stuff from horse racing to theater, stuff that I had no clue about. But I would get great insight from him. I used to just love those conversations. And as a young person living in the UK, you know, on their own, like 1920, you're living on your own in a dingy apartment in Bradford. Um, not the nicest place in the world, not the worst, but not the best. And then you sort of come in there and you're made to feel like very welcome, very at home. It was always, always a really, yeah, there were probably some of the highlights of my sort of days as a young, young squash player. Oh, that's, that's really nice. And it is, it's such a, it's such a warm sort of welcoming club. Um, and Malcolm's a huge part of that. Um, and that's that's st- still the case now, and not right this minute, obviously. Um, um, but you know, hopefully the club will be back open soon, and it'll be business as usual. And and I'm seeing it also from a parent's perspective now, because my eldest Logan's really keen on the squash, so he's there, you know, in, in normal circumstances where they're sort of two or three times a week um, for Malcolm session, and and it's just it's just brilliant. He absolutely loves it. Um, so it, you know, it's interesting having played there and trained there, seeing it now um, as a parent as well, and, and what how much good it does. Amazing. Does he look up to the James, or is he? He's probably more impressed with Sam Todd, I would imagine, at that age. 
Um, no, he's still young enough to be very impressed with, to be all about daddy. I'm sure that'll change when he, you know, as he gets a little bit older. Um, so when he's, when he's playing, if we're, if we're playing little games, he, he, or he always has to be James Willstrop. He always pretends to be daddy, which is quite cute. Um, and he tries to, he tries to copy the, um, the triple fake. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. so cool. His favorite shot. Um, no, so he loves all that. And it's nice for him to, um, to be able to watch, watch him play, obviously, which again, in my day, that wasn't really around. So I'm not sure he actually believes that I ever was a squash player. I think he thinks it's a massive hoax. Um, <laughs> you, you, you need to go on no court and show him what. barely any actual footage of it. There's no evidence. Um, but yeah, no, he loves it. He loves watching squash TV as well. So he gets, he thinks I'm just a commentator and a mum. Oh, man. Just to be <laughs> Just as he's starting to get good and getting a bit of confidence, you can take him on court and show him a lesson and see. Just yeah, don't ever exactly. forget how good I was. No, exactly. Yeah, he's, he's still he's still at the age where we sort of we do. James will sort of beat him sometimes, but he'll also let him win because otherwise you just get you know you'll just start crying. Um, <laughs> and I think he actually he still thinks that when he wins, he's actually beating daddy. Um, that he's good enough to beat him. So he's yeah he hasn't quite got the perspective yet. <laughs> that's okay that's cool and actually that's deadly you, you think about you know both your, your yours and james son and you have lee's son ben yeah he's Class. really good yeah yeah he's, no he's... it's good and um my youngest bram he goes on court now he goes every sunday to the junior so he's three and he's already on court um and he's on court with beachel's daughter lee beachel's daughter emmy um so yeah there's a whole new generation coming up <laughs> amazing Amazing. No pressure. No pressure on them whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd love, I'd love Logan to be a squash player. I can't think of any better career for anyone. It's just given us just the best life. Um, so if he, if that's what he wants to do, I'll be more than happy. Could commentate on his matches. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> that'd be, be nerve wracking. I can't even commentate on James's matches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. It is. A, it's a great life. It's a great sport travel the world playing a sport you love and you meet all these great people and obviously there's the dizzy heights that you've you've reached which is incredible amazing you must look back at that and be really proud and especially coming from the background in terms of like didn't take the conventional or not slightly easier route but you did it your own way by sticking with Dutch squash and and uh, yeah yeah I mean I'm proud of the fact that I that I did it um because as I said it just didn't none of it came naturally it wasn't um, I, I struggled with the, I struggled with the the lifestyle that that you needed to get to that level, um, and I think that's why I wasn't able to be um, consistently at the top. But I, you know, I got there and I did it, and um, I won I won the big one, um, yeah, which is something I'll, something I'll always hold <laughs> over James and, and and refer to constantly. Um, but I think we, I think the only reason that that is funny is because we both know that his career is. <laughs> far out, out, outshadowed mine um, in terms of, you know, just uh, that um, consistency and being at the top for, for, you know, for 10 plus years, um, which is just incredible. And that, that's a special, that's a special thing that only certain players have that gives them the ability to do that. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you if you valued the world number one or world championship over the other, which one had more, sort of meaning but you might have just answered it because obviously James has been world number one but he's not been world champion so it goes without saying that 
if you want to rub it in his face, then World Championship is much more important, right? <laughs> yeah, huge, much, much bigger. Um, <laughs> any any I mean, chump can get to world number one, but only true professionals win the World Championships. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably the other way around, to be fair. Um, but yeah, we won't tell him that. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he's probably, he, he's got to be one of the best players ever to have never won, won a World Championship. Um but to to have been at the level that he's played at for such a long period of time, um, and you know, and I, I've seen on a day to day basis what that takes, and in terms of his work ethic and the level that he's um, trained at, but for all that time, it's I I I I managed to do that for a relatively short period because it is so so hard. And still to this day, sustaining. I mean, we saw in white ball he beat Yusuf Ibrahim, who had just beaten Shibagi in the previous tournament, so. He, He's still clearly performing, maybe not at his previous levels when he was world number one, but certainly at a top 20 and on his days pushing top 10 guys regularly. Like he's beaten Joe Macon a couple of times. And... Yeah. Yeah. He's no, he's, he, I mean, the level still is, is still really, really good. And he, he trains differently. He trains very, very cleverly now. Um, so he tries to, um, to spare his body as much impact as possible. Obviously, there has to be some to be able to play at that level, but he doesn't put in. Um, the hours that he used to, he, he, it's very high quality, but um, but he yeah he tries to, to 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 do what he needs to do and then get out of there and and you know a lot of that's to do with wanting to spend time with the kids and not wanting not really wanting mentally to put that amount of hours in um, and I think that's probably again lengthened his career just that ability to change and mature and, and do things differently and recognise that. You can't you can't keep doing things the way that you maybe did things when you were twenty five if you want to have a long career. Yeah, it's amazing. The first time I ever saw James, I was probably fifteen, and um, we were having a little like squash Canada uh, squad camp around the tournament that used to be the pro tournament that used to be in Toronto, and I think James was probably only like nineteen, um, or no, maybe. maybe maybe I was even a little younger then and but he was just on kind of just coming up and I remember him beating someone in the qualifying and then we like looked around the corner and he was off doing doing like court sprints and push-ups and we were all like what the heck's going on what's this guy doing and someone was someone was like one of the coaches oh you know he's he's not really worried about this tournament he's worried about what he's gonna do and you know in a few years time and we were like we were probably like 13 and we were like what a crazy guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he's got to play again tomorrow why is he doing court strings but yeah that was i mean that was, yeah you do have to be a little bit mad to do i think you do have to be a little bit mad to do the, the amount of work that is necessary to to do to achieve you know what players like james and um and those guys have achieved is 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 crazy and it's it's not it's not healthy and i think if he had kept that level up um, to now, then he probably would have wrecked his body, but he's had to, he's had to change. And he's, I think he's clever enough to, to be, to be able to do that. And obviously his, his squash is, is so good that that's probably helped as well. He doesn't have to rely, um, on his physicality as much as some other players who play differently. Well, Vanessa, thanks a million. You've been really good with your time. Great to have you oh, on. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks that's for chatting. Fast. Yeah. Time flies. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I look forward to hearing what you think of your first ever podcast. (laughs) You know what? It's a rule. I've I've never actually listened to myself commentate because I I find it absolutely unbearable. Um, (laughs) So so don't take offense if I don't listen to this back. I might, I'll I'll get someone else's opinion. I'll force James to listen to it. (laughs) Perfect. 
I was going to say, <laughs> if you did listen, just just in case you got into podcasts, you're not on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> This is it now. I don't want you listening to this one and thinking, oh, these podcasts are great. I'm brilliant on them all. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to worry about that. Thank you so much for having me, though. Yeah, thank you. Nice one. Thanks again, Vanessa, for joining us on the show. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you like what you hear, you can check us out on social, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And just at the very end, we have a little bonus, uh, a song that has just been released by squash legend Charlie Blessberg called The River. And it's taken two years to put this together, but it's well worth the wait, let me tell you. You can check him out on iTunes and Spotify and all other digital platforms. Happy days. Cheers. I miss squash.
Perfect timing.